The Winnebago Concepts and Engineering Departments have developed a multifunctional bathroom. Privacy, I don't even know what the fuck I'm reading. I wonder what the fuck the real dialogue is. What the fuck is this thing? All of the windshield, for fuck's sake. Oh, fuck. What? What the fuck did I say? That didn't sound for shit, did it? And here, under the hood, we've stored something that'll really come in handy if it doesn't fall out and break my leg. I know the rift is in your eye. What are you trying to Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on, Mystic Vance? Paranoid Futures on social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, consider joining our Patreon. Not only get cool perks, but you also make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. Go ahead and hit the like, thumbs up, the heart, subscribe, whatever, on whatever platform you are listening to this on. It'd be a great help if you gave us a little review on the Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell. So if you like what we're doing, do the thing. Yeah, I mean... If you don't join the Patreon, just spreading the word of the void is just as good. Equally good, I think. So how you been, man? It's been a bit since we recorded, since we do these about once a month. We work together, like directly together, for a lot of stuff, especially digital content, but we don't really hang out as much. That's true. I have not seen you lately. Yeah. I mean, it might be for the fact that you don't like me, but like... It, it might be. It might be. Yeah, I guess we've we've both been busy. I've been going to baby showers, and my new band was recording. Of course, busy throwing film around town. I mean, why don't you talk about your new band a little bit? Since, like, I know you're, we mentioned this last few podcasts, and we're going to keep teasing. You got spine numbers coming. I know you're basically waiting on getting some art ready for it so that can drop. As of, of like, last week, I I had a band name, like, all sewn up. I thought it was fucking sick. It, like, fit really well. And uh, and I and I eventually dug a little deeper and found that there is another band <laughs> with that name. So I I have to have some integrity and not just like steal their band name and just try to be a better band. Yeah, you know, there's there's that move that some bands try to do, and I think it's I think it sucks. All uh, the the name Jack. Yeah, yeah, you can't just like call your band fucking Therapy or whatever. <laughs> Dude, come on. Dinosaur the Third. No, there's really there's a band called Therapy. I know there is with a question mark. They're only just no. There's a band in San Diego called Therapy. But anyway, enough about them. But then there was also the, there was also the Therapy that was. Well, yeah, the... I mean, there's a new band right now in San Diego that's a hardcore band called Therapy. Like you just don't have like you. Oh, like they just don't acknowledge the other Therapy yeah. that probably is still around in some way. Shape, <laughs> right, or form. they're playing fucking Canadian alt rock festivals. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to talk shit on that. Well, I do kind of. I think it sucks when bands jack names. So I do want to talk a little shit. But there's there's many fucking more like right now. There's yeah. like, uh, it's a, uh, like people just don't care anymore. I mean, the other thing the, is the, uh, the young kids don't care. 
No kids don't give a fuck. They're just like, whatever, I'll just TikTok this shit. And that's, you know, that, <laughs> though, that, that takes, that takes more importance than like being an established band for 20 years. I, I'm waiting for people like, yo, it's my band, the Beatles. Yeah. But anyway, my new band doesn't even have a band name. So I don't know. We just recorded a bunch of songs last weekend. Uh, we still have to record bass and vocals, but it's coming along and I don't know. I'm fucking stoked on it. Yeah. You played me a little bit. It sounds really good. It's definitely, I mean, you can correct me here. It's like, very, I want to say 90s, but in like the definitely like the David Geffen or DGC, whatever that was. It wasn't Geffen, right? It was where Nirvana and Sonic Youth ended up. Right on. So like things like the Posies and like, I guess first two Foo Fighter records I kind of heard in there. It's like, it's heavy. It's nice. You also get some Mega City 4 and a lot of, a lot of influences. It's like another thing I pointed out or we talked about was the band Shoulder from Canada, which heard a little bit of that in there too if, uh, if you don't know who any of these fucking bands are that's a that's a weird one but i guess you know you hear, hey, you hear what you hear i'll take it hey man but i, I like all those things so yeah I, I mean thank you also if you want to check out that shoulder record is actually on itunes i think it's called touch it has like a weird wooden marionette thing on it it's weird because that was a hard record to get for a while and then it's just randomly on itunes mm-hmm. i think those dudes went on to be in the constantines or something like that yeah that's true um I think that I could be wrong. I haven't revisited it in a while, but maybe that's one that stays in the nineties. <laughs> Probably. Maybe. I don't know. I still like that record, but I would honestly haven't thrown it on anytime recently. And speaking of bands, finally, after four years of me busting your balls on this podcast in real life, text message, email, fucking like voicemails. Tell us what you finally lined up. Well, I told you. Yeah. That you told that me. a record that uh, I told you that a record label is going to put out uh, the Mirror Crypt record, but I also told you a while back that every time you mention it, it gets pushed back another six months. So, well, so here we are. Well, record label already has all the material, <laughs> so it's out of your fucking hands now. So well, it's... that's not actually true. Oh, but... <laughs> but anyway, that's coming out probably maybe by the end of this year. Maybe end of this year, maybe 2025, 26. You know, you never know. There's no rush. It's it's only been recorded since 2018. It's like a lost movie. It's a lost album. There you go. When it, when it drops, it drops. It is what it is. Uh, other things that I guess been going on, been doing a lot of screenings. Been doing a lot of screenings since I came back from Salem. Did some for the Beyond Fest, American Cinematheque, 1982 series, which were all movies that came out the summer of 82. I did two screenings for that. I did the last American version with um, Diane Franklin and Lawrence Monison in person, like the two main stars. As one of my favorite Void shows I got to, you know, do just in general. It was a great night, great crowd. It was sold out, which is really great, especially for that movie. You know, I think 80% of the audience hadn't seen it before. And when the fucking ending drops, fucking silence. Like devastation. And people applaud it, but then good section people also got up and left before the Q and A because I think it just fucked with them that bad. Nice. So movies still have power. Also in that eighty-two series, I did the Beastmaster with um, director, writer Don Coscarelli, writer producer Paul Peppermint, and as an added guest, the composer Lee Holdridge came out, and that was a really fun Q and A. I didn't have a lot of time because Beastmaster is a little bit of a longer movie, so I had, had to condense the Q and A. I probably could have gone on for an hour but you know still good discussion uh anytime i have don out it's always a good time and then wasn't really a proper official void event but you know, co-presented which was with the um la phil and 
American Cinematech, this, um, I guess, 80s L.A. horror marathon. Basically, is a bunch of movies that take place in L.A. in the 80s, and they're horror movies. They have to geographically. They can't be just shot in the 80s. It has to be L.A. proper. And it was curated and hosted by Winter Mitchell. Shout out Winter. It was a great event. We had a special guest show. We had Amy Holden Jones, the director of Slumber Party Massacre. Sandy King Carpenter, the producer of They Live, came out. And Kelly Maroney of Chopping Mall and Night of the Comet also showed up. And they did a little Q&A. Then we all went out and had a dinner afterwards and had a good time just talking and all that kind of stuff. Really cool event. And kind of it's kind of nice to do something look a little different like that. And it was, you know, a lot of people came out. Like, getting people to come out the genre stuff in the Arrow is a tough, tough feat. But... People came out for it, and a lot of people had a good time. And then for the rest of May, um, I basically closed things out with what I called Canon Mayhem. I did Ninja 3 on 35mm, which was fucking fantastic to see in a theater with a crowd. It was just ridiculous. And then also did Death Wish 4, and um, Friend of the Void, Deanna Rooney, came out and played the clone of Charles Bronson. Nice. And you can... You can see a little bit of that, and you actually see a little bit of all the Q&As from this. There's a new Cinematic Void vlog that came out pretty recently. Probably be the most one recent when this podcast comes. Actually, no, there will probably be other ones. But if you want to go back and check it out, I think it's episode 14 of the vlog on YouTube. It's a, basically a recap of most of the shows I did in May. I just stuck to the Lost Fields 3 ones. I didn't really talk about the marathon much. But, you know, you get clips of the... Beastmaster and Last American Version Q&As, and you also get to see Deanna Rooney's Charlie Bronson as well, so check it out. I mean, I've figured out different avenues of things to do, you know what I mean? Because, like, you know, some people listen to podcasts, some people are only in it for the cinematic movies, some people only come to live shows, so I try to offer different things and just, you know... For the vlog, I've been doing recaps. I did a bunch of location stuff recently when I went to Salem. I did a bunch of those episodes, and I got some more location stuff coming up. I'm hoping by the time this episode comes out, I'll have a location episode for Last American Version and Joysticks, getting those sex comedies in. There you go. And, yeah, that's basically what I've been up to and coming up in the void. Like, as we're recording this, Bleak Week has kicked off, and I got a couple screenings in that. But... Most importantly, and if you listened to the previous episode, you already know this, Camp Void's coming back in a big way. You know, sort of Cinemanus movie doing with Culture Shock releasing. Not really, I guess it's a summertime movie, so I guess it could fit. But there's also an exclusive on Patreon episode of that as well. That's probably, I don't want to give a date because I think, that I can't, not sure when this episode comes out. It might come out the same week or after or whatever. But a bunch of stuff. So if you want to listen to that, everything that's going on with Camp Void, Go back an episode and catch up, or you might already listen to it, and I'm just rambling for no fucking reason. Which leads us into what we're talking about today, which is we're keeping up those summer feels. And kind of like the format of the last episode we did, where we did like kind of a double feature for batter, you know, the batter up episode where we did blood games and night game together. So I want to do another theme double feature. And not saying this is the permanent format, just like. Something you and I talked about mutually. It's like, hey, this worked pretty good. Why don't we do a couple more like that? See what we know. See how we feel. So for this theme, we are doing RVs or Winnebago's, whatever you want to call them. So we picked two movies that predominantly feature Winnebago's. And they couldn't be any more different <laughs> different from each other than they, these two movies. Only thing in common is Winnebago's. 
So we're going to take a quick break here, but when we return, we're going to get ready for some Winnebago Warriors here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Every spring it comes, that urge to roam. And spring is waiting for you right now at your Winnebago dealer's 73 Spring Rally. Winnebago Spring Rally. Winnebago. Now's your chance to see all the Winnebagos. The brave. The best value on the road. The Indian. America's best-selling motorhome. The Chieftain. For total luxury. And the all-new Mini Winnie. The first mini motorhome good enough to wear the Flying W. They're all here at your Winnebago dealer's 73 Spring Rally. See them now. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cold film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanist Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time... See you in the void. So welcome back to the Cinematic Void. This is episode 53, Winnebago Warriors. And uh, as you might have seen on Twitter, Jim is actually out of town right now. That was a pre-recorded intro. Um, so I'm actually having a guest today uh, while Jim's out of town. Uh, today we're going to welcome uh, Jack Rebney from Winnebago Man. And he's going to be on today. And we're actually going to talk about Near Dark and the uh, Breaking Bad TV show. So uh, welcome to the show, Jack Rebney. <laughs> I, like, I can't even do a fucking impersonation of him, you goddamn jackass. And like, fucking, these fucking flies. What <laughs> am I supposed to do? Tony? Tony? Tony, could you do me a solid? <laughs> but as Nick said, although not really, I'm, I, I'm not on vacation. I'm here in this room. I think I am, unless there's some weird space-time continuum that Nick knows about that I'm not. Maybe I'm a hologram. Maybe I'm not real. Maybe I am the fucking Winnebago man. But regardless of all that, we are talking about fucking Winnebagos today. And we got two movies. And as already stated, there's Winnebagos in it. And honestly, unlike the the variants of baseball that were in the baseball movies we were talking about, there's a lot of fucking Winnebagos in the, both of these. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I'd say for both movies, maybe 60 say at least 60%, maybe as high as 80% of the movies take place in or around or near the Winnebago's in these movies. I would say that the titles do not hint to Winnebago's whatsoever. No, and that that's kind of the trick because, like, you know, it's it's kind of a surprise. Like, you know, you're not expecting the Winnebago experience. So we're going to just kind of jump in here and talk about the first movie featuring an RV, Winnebago, whatever the fuck you want to call it. It is a movie from 1975 directed by Jack Starrett. It is Race with the Devil. Starrett directed things like The Losers, Slaughter, and Cleopatra Jones and was an actor that appeared in things like First Blood, Blazing Saddles, and had a little cameo in this film as a gas station tenant. The film stars Peter Fonda, who you might know from Easy Rider, The Trip, The Great Warren Oates, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and Cockfighter, 
Loretta Swift, who was in Freebie and Bean and the TV version of MASH, Laura Parker, who's best known for being in Dark Shadows, and R.G. Jones, who you might know as Pruneface from Dick Tracy, as well as a bunch of other cool cult movies like Evil Speak, The Car, and The Pack. The screenplay was written by Lee Frost, who directed such exploitation trash as Love Camp 7, The Black Gestapo, and The Thing with Two Heads, and his frequent collaborator Wes Bishop, who is also an actor. The film was lensed by Robert Jessup, who also shot such high, highbrow entertainment as Silent Rage and Sugar Hill, and the film was executively produced by Paul Molansky, who directed Sugar Hill, but is probably best known for producing the Police Academy series. For those you haven't seen it, which you probably want to see this if you're listening to this as we talk about it, or maybe you're going to listen to this first and then decide, yeah, this is the Winnebago movie for me. Anyway, here's a little plot. Frank and Roger and their wives take off to Colorado in a recreational vehicle, RV, Winnebago, whatever you want to fucking call it, and they're looking forward to some skiing and dirt biking. While camping en route, they witness a satanic ritual sacrifice, but the local sheriff finds no evidence to support their claims and urges them to continue on their vacation. On the way, however, they find themselves repeatedly attacked by cult members and take measures to defend themselves. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, we should mention that the writer Lee Frost was the original director of this film, but he was kind of fired very early on by Fox head Alan Ladd Jr. after watching the dailies. I don't know what was in those dailies. Maybe it's just like nothing happened. Like shit, movie just didn't look good. Who knows? So Star was brought in and actually reshot most of the movies. So I don't think anything Frost shot really ended up in there. So complete overhaul. Now, this was your first time watching this movie, right? Yes. And were you trying to figure out like how does the Winnebago work in this? <laughs> uh no no it just it all kind of it all happens real quick yeah i mean <laughs> you know you, you get into it you know you get to you get to see some winnebago action pretty early on pretty early i was stoked on the you know stoked on the occult stuff yeah i, I figured that would be up your alley and especially 70s occults mm-hmm. because like you know there's definitely like you got to think of things like the Devil's Reign, where Anton LaVey, head of Church of Satan, was a consultant. I think he's also the consultant on the car. Funny enough, mm-hmm. so funnily enough, we talked about it in the last pat podcast that like funny enough is not the term; it's funnily enough. And I'm trying to learn something new at 42. So there you go. But yes, there was a lot of satanic movies in the 70s before there was. I I think 80s was more the satanic panic where people were like. Oh, Satanists and heavy metal music and whatever that shit is, but like the seventies, it was just like they were kind of villains, but they were also kind of fucking cool. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you, you any Satanist or or I really Satanist, but fake Satanist, like Satanist actually worship Satan. And if you know anything about the Church of Satan, I'm talking about the Live one, not the weird fucking poser one. That <laughs> I don't know what that fucking shit is. They just like clean up beaches or whatever. Yeah, that's what? cool. Yeah, whatever. It's just a bit, that's well, it has to do with Satan, but yeah, I mean, you know, do your oh, thing. Yeah, you build a Baphomet. Good for you. Whatever. Like, I mean, not to say Levee was like much. I mean, he was. A <laughs> that's showman. that cooler either. No, I mean, <laughs> but know, it's not like you know. I'm I'm in my forties. Uh, Satanism isn't cool anymore. No, it's it, it's just <laughs> you know. It's some cool imagery if you're, like, doing a fucking doom metal band or something. Like, you throw that art on there, it's going to always look cool. But right. Like, like, this is, this, the way that they look in this movie is what it, the like, it's that same vibe as, like, an Electric Wizard record or something like yeah. that, you know? And 
the one thing I should mention that the director claims that they had real Satanists playing the Satanists in the movie, which <laughs> could be true because like Anton LaVey, like he, he wasn't going to turn down a paycheck, yeah. you know, like he loved publicity. He was a publicity whore. Right. Yeah. yeah. But like, he was like originally like a carnival barker or something. Yeah, like, you know, it's, you have different jobs that lead to your other jobs. So carnival barker, head of the church of Satan, there's a good through line there. So there might have been some church or real Satanists or whatever or cult members, but probably just some fucking extras. Yeah. Because there's no mention of, like, affiliation where, like, the devil's reign, like, he's listed as a consultant and that kind of stuff. Whereas he's documented on set and shit like that. But whatever. So to kick things off this movie, you actually get a really cool kind of trippy opening credit sequence. And then you kind of, you know, cut to Warren Oates, who's... By far one of the coolest motherfuckers that has ever been in film. I don't think that's up to debate. I don't think anyone's going to be saying, like, Warren Oates sucks. If you do, you probably just should fuck off. I, I will not take any, like, <laughs> shit talk on Warren Oates. I don't, no self-respecting film fan should, like, say anything bad about Warren Oates. Because he's one of the greatest character actors that ever lived. And the movie starts out with him just like, you know, he's at the motorcycle shop that him and Peter Fonda's character is owns and they're like tidying things up before they go on their trip and he's like he's like where's peter peter fonda i guess we i could use his character name but i i can't you can't expect me to name that the actor and their fucking character name so it's just gonna be peter fonda or i could have wrote it down and made it easier on myself but just gonna soldier forth with this what what is war notes been in war notes has been in a lot of peck and ball movies we already talked about fredo garcia he was in the wall bunch cockfighter two-lane blacktop um, he's just in a ton of stuff and he's always, he's always good in it. It's just like, he's just, I don't know. It's like character actors in the sixties and seventies are a different breeds than like mm-hmm. what actors are now, because a lot of those character actors were lead actors. You know, think Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, who we talked about last episode, like people that just like have character that don't, you don't really get anymore. You know, I mean, I couldn't think of like a American contemporary, or I don't want to say American contemporary, a modern contemporary to someone who'd be like Warren Oates now. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't. I mean, you kind of lose that area. Like you don't have Dick, Mi- someone that's like a Dick Miller level of character actor anymore who would pop in for a five minute scene or whatever. But you know, Warren Oates is the kind of actor that if you have him in your movie, the movie's instantly better. Just he just has that kind of power charisma i don't know what you want to call it just like he just there's just something about war notes in a movie that just like he just it ups the level where and it's a very rare thing for an actor to be able to do like i can't think of many other actors like you know harry dean stanton harry dean stanton pops up in something like it somehow makes the movie better Mm -hmm. even if he's in it for like three minutes or something like that i don't know yeah harvey Keitel. yeah harvey actually harvey's a really good choice like harvey Harvey comes in like he's always memorable. Yeah. He just, it's, it's just a, it's a quality, which I think doesn't really exist now, unfortunately, or is it, I mean, it might not be apparent because like, I guess if you stick Warren Oates in a Marvel movie, he's going to get lost in the CGI. So mm-hmm. whatever. Anyway, Warren has to go find out where Peter Fonda is. And he's of course doing what Peter Fonda's famous for, besides being the son of Henry Fonda and the brother to Jane Fonda. He's riding a fucking motorcycle. He's doing some laps on a dirt track or a time track. 
And they're like, oh, man, we got to make some changes to this. We got to get your time up or whatever. And anyway, once Peter's done riding, him and Warren and their wives, they hop in that RV and hit the road. And I, it, at one point, I don't know if you noticed this while watching it, and I never really thought about it until this rewatch, but like, there appears to be a Winnebago commercial in the middle of this movie. Hmm. The the scene when they're driving Warren Warren Oates is like point out like all the shit that's in it. It's like you know it's got a shower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you know, like going over like he's like, it's like it's he just pitching this to people like hmm. stereo, four channels. Nice. And look here, color television. All right, how's reception? Perfect. Antenna. <laughs> Da, 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 da. The saloon. Ah, uh, <laughs> now you're talking, big fella. And there's more. Right this way, double sink. Four burner stove. Uh-huh. And oven. For the exhaust. All right. Microwave oven. The brown your bird. <laughs> Browner. Couple of bucks for the kids. Kids? And surprise of surprises, a Roman bath. Maybe it's just like they're just trying to explain things and like, like, accoutrement, accoutrement, what the (laughs) fuck is this shit? I mean, it could, it could happen, but it's just like, but it's just the way he delivers it is really slick. Like, yeah, look, you know, got the bed and got the, got the stove and whatever, you know, whatever fucking fancy shit was in a 70s RV. Warren Oates is fucking selling it to you. And, you know, the chemistry between the main four actors in the movie is really, really good. And honestly, if the satanic cult never showed up, I think it could have worked as one of those 70s kind of like laid back, like hangout movies. Yeah, right on. Like, you know, they stop riding their fucking dirt bikes around and shit. Mm-hmm. Go back to the RV, drive a little bit more, find another spot to hang out. And, like, that stuff works. And, I mean, it kind of has to work, because if it doesn't, you're not going to stick around for the satanic cult to show up, you know? Yeah. They're just having a good time. Like, it's like, yeah, I'd hang out with Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. Like, seriously. I'd ride a dirt bike. I don't know how to fucking ride a dirt bike, but i try to ride a dirt bike to hang out with them. Dude, it sounds fun as hell. I'd probably fucking wreck and break my neck, but still. You know? Oh, yeah. I, I, it's a, we get you on a four-wheeler? Fuck, dude. Four-wheeler? <laughs> every time I think of four-wheelers, <laughs> yeah. I think of the so Royal... You don't t- have to worry about just fucking falling over. I mean, you will, but... Oh, yeah, you can flip over and get fucking crushed yeah, by a four-wheeler. start trying to hit some fucking sweet jumps. <laughs> I feel like this is just like a jackass bit waiting to happen. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim Brantz from Cinematic Void, and this is... Sweet jumps. Sweet jumps <laughs> for cinema. <laughs> just fucking... Just eating shit and dying. I don't know, but a lot of fun stuff. But then, you know... All good things have to come to end, and they stumble upon this satanic cult doing satanic shit in the woods. Now, as someone who's watched a lot of movies with occult elements, how would you rate this satanic sacrifice thing that's going on that they're... I, I, I thought it was great. As we had said before, I mean, they look cool as hell. Like, I would sure to be over at, hey, let me join your team. Like, what are you guys doing? You look sick. Do you have an extra robe? Yeah, I mean... Let's hang out. The one dude has, like, the, the lead guy has that really creepy fucking mask. And I also like how they shot it. It's, like, you know, lots of wide shots and the extreme close-ups of the dude's face. You know that first uh, Danzig VHS? Mm-hmm. That mask kind of looks like the guy. You know, I think that's just, like, maybe Danzig on a cross with, like, a big skull mask or something. But yeah. it kind of looks similar to that. 
it also makes me think of uh like the dragnet scene where they have like the big like cult thing like kind of is that the beginning of the movie yeah i think so yeah, yeah. but uh yeah, cool shit. Um, I think uh, the scene, the scene where they, um, where it does have the guy with the mask and they stab the girl, the big like occult scene was also in the Burbs. No shit. It's like Tom Hanks sitting on the bed watching TV and that's what he's watching. I mean, it makes sense because like you know, Burbs directed by Joe Dante. Joe Dante knows his shit, and like that's kind of a cool little needle drop to like sneak in the Burbs. I mean, I should mention this now. This movie's PG. Not, yeah. not, not. 70s PG was walling out. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I mean, this kind of, I'm just going a little off topic here. When I showed Beastmaster, that was rated PG. And there's like fucking nudity. There's people dying. There's like scary animal stuff. And I was like, Don, I asked Don and Paul, like, how the fuck did you get a PG? It's like, well, we didn't make it to be PG. We made it to be an R movie, but because there's no blood. Oh, wow. But I was like, there's like fucking nudity in it. It's like, Man, PG was a lot different in, like, the 70s up through, like, 82 or something like that. Right. It's like, I, it just blows my mind. So, after, you know, the cult has found him out, we get a really great sequence in this movie, which is the Satanist ch- chasing the RV. So, we get tons of RV action. I think this is one of the great, like, kind of exploitation cinema sequences. Because you got, like, Satanists, like, hanging on the fucking RV. Like, there's there's definitely also a point where the RV gets stuck. And it's not like when you get your car stuck in a movie. Like, this is a big fucking vehicle you have to move. And they're, like, in, like, a fucking giant piece of tree to, like, kind of wedge it out so it can get out of the little mud or water or whatever that is. You know, I mean, it's... I think it's pretty top-notch. And, you know, I think it's fucking great. The music's really good in it. And, like, you know... They don't have any weapons, which is kind of unique for a 70s movie. They didn't pack guns and shit like that or, like, any kind of stuff like that because they're going on vacation. Why would you need a gun? I guess the world was different then or whatever. And they're using, like, a... They have one of those windshield wipers for, like, the RV, and they're, like, hitting the Satanists there trying to, like, crawl in through the back window with it. And it's just, like... I don't know. It's a really good sequence. I don't know what you thought about it. Yeah, get your, get your hearts racing a little. It's, like, turns into a fucking little, little chase movie there for a minute think is think of an rv as a chase vehicle (laughs) right but that's what makes it so so much more you know because it's more challenging it's like how are these guys gonna get out of this i mean the stakes are higher because it's just like you know you have all your comforts in this vehicle but when you need to get the fuck out fast it is not the optimal getaway vehicle by any stretch of the imagination anyway after that sequence they kind of like you know, go to the nearby town, they get the sheriff to go take the sheriff, go back, like, this is where the thing happened, and, like, sheriff's like, ain't shit here, like, it's all gone, but the wives go to the library, and they find a book on, like, you know, cults and stuff like that, and they find, like, a, I think there's a photo that's very similar to the satanic ritual that's in the movie, so they're like, huh, this is something weird, but we're just gonna hang out in this town at this RV park, you know, there's a swimming pool, which I should mention here, the movie is supposed to take place in January, and they're supposed to be, like, you know, skiing or something like that. Why is there a functioning swimming pool in Colorado? Yeah. You don't really think about it until you think about it. Like, it's not a big deal. I mean, if someone's like, that's a major continuity error. It was just like, maybe it's just like, fuck it, man. Also, you got Warren Oates. Warren Oates will heat up the fucking room or the fucking area, and you can use that swimming pool. So, there you go. Then the movie kind of like becomes a hangout movie and they're hanging out with their new friends at this RV park, you know. I mean, we talked about Warren Oates, but we didn't talk about his like, you know, pretty famous hangout movie he did with Monty Hellman, which is Tulane Blacktop. 
which is a great, great fucking movie I haven't seen. It also has Dennis Wilson, and I'm blanking on who else is in it, but, like, really good, like, existential, like, hang movie. Cool. And it also has Warren Oates in it, which I've already said. But, again, the good times have to end, because the Satanists break into their RV and kill their dog. Pretty shitty. Yeah, they're dicks. Yeah. I mean, Satanists were cool, but then you kill the dog. Now, that's one thing I always find funny, that, like, Everyone always does animal sacrifices or animal violence with satanic cults. But, like, if you do anything about Anton LaVey, he was a big animal rights person. And he always got offended when people did this shit. I mean, he used to own a fucking tiger or yeah. a lion or whatever. I think it was a lion. Because that lion ended up at the same animal sanctuary that Tippy Hedren ran, which ended up being used in Roar. So Anton LaVey's lion is one of the stars of the movie Roar. Wow. But, yeah. It's, Very cool. Yeah, so mo- real Satan, real Church of Satan people don't do animal shit. I was listening to a, uh, I was listening to a podcast that Mike Tyson was on, and uh, the guy, the guy on the podcast was questioning him and saying, "Hey, if you're if you love animals so much, why do you keep tigers in captivity?" And Mike Tyson's like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "Why did you keep tigers in captivity?" He's like, "They're not captivity. They slept in my bed." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Even tigers knew to respect Iron Mike. They didn't want to get, <laughs> they didn't want to fucking catch a fucking right cross. But anyway, the crew decides like maybe we should get the fuck out of here. They killed her dog, so they get hit the road. And guess what's in the RV? Fucking rattlesnakes. I feel like rattlesnakes. You know how we've talked about like, or you've mentioned like quicksand is like you know the big '80s trope. Mm-hmm. I feel like rattlesnakes was a big '70s trope. Like, yeah. like a rattlesnake would show up and scare someone, or someone got bit, and they have to go get like the you know, poison out or whatever, some shit. I I don't have this confirmed, but I feel like there's a lot of rattlesnakes in 70s cinema. Yeah. I can't think of any other movies off the top of my head that have them, but, like, it, it seems like a trope. But, you know, they're driving this RV, and they're fucking fighting these rattlesnakes in the RV. And, like, it's, again, it's kind of brilliant because, like, that RV is supposed to represent, like, quality, comfort, safety. You know, it's your home on wheels. And you have fucking rattlesnakes on it. And you're fucking driving while doing it. So it, it's, it's another really great kind of kind of insane sequence. But they get rid of the rattlesnakes. They're just like, all right, we got we really, really got to, you know, take care of things. So, I mean, at this point, they wisely stop and buy some guns because the Satanists aren't quitting. You know, they're putting rattlesnakes in their car. They kill their dog. They're constantly, like, fucking attacking them. And, like, you know, normal passive means or, like, using a giant, like, RV, like, wiper squeegee thing isn't going to cut it if they're going to fucking bring knives. You, you know, we're going to bring guns to a knife fight. So what this all leads up to is another great RV chase where, like, the Satanists are driving, like, panel trucks and, like, pickup trucks, and, like, they're chasing them on a highway, and it's another, you know, great car chase. I mean, that's another thing the 70s were known for is, like, you got fucking great car scenes. And, you know... It's kind of a trend that kind of died out in the 80s. You had things like to, to Live and Die in L.A. that had a great car chase and things like that. But the 70s was like the king era of like crazy car stuff. And I think using an RV in a car chase is really great because it it's a it's a big target for everyone. I mean, it's just a great sequence. And they vanquish the Satanists finally. And they get back to their vacation. They park, you know, it's like, all right, finally. After they kill her dog. They put rattlesnakes in our car. After they try to fucking kill us multiple times, we can enjoy our vacation. Nope. 
They find the Satanists have surrounded their RV and put a ring of fire. A burning ring of fire. That's a terrible Johnny Cash. I apologize. And then the Satanists kind of reveal themselves and it's like the sheriff, all their friends they met at the RV park. So it's like everyone was in on it. And it's kind of like a nice downbeat 70s movie ending. So, I mean, that's Race for the Devil. I, I hadn't watched it in forever and I kind of enjoyed the rewatch. What were your thoughts on it? I think it's I think it's pretty cool. Um, the the like the poster I found that I saw kind of maybe had a lot more promise than than the film really gave me. Yeah, I um, mean, it was just just RVs and motorbikes flying everywhere and explosions, and I guess that's what this was. But I don't know, it didn't fully deliver for me. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a little more subdued than like I mean the poster. There, I mean the original poster definitely oversells it a bit. I think. Mm. Unlike the like re-release posters and like the various DVD posters that completely undersell, it's like I think there's a version of this on DVD where it's just like Warren Oates and Peter Fonda in the front seat of the RV and just says "Race with the Devil." <laughs> yeah, it looks like complete shit. And like if I saw that, like I ain't seen that fucking movie, and I love Warren Oates. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's somewhere in between. Like I enjoy it if you enjoy like '70s like satanic you know cult movies that feature RVs, Race with the Devil might be your bag. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we return, more Winnebago Warriors here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Two men on a dream vacation. What the hell are they doing? I sure think they killed her. Frank, they've seen us. And get trapped. In an unbelievable nightmare. Turn off the light! Why? What's wrong? What are you guys up to? 20th Century Fox presents Race the Devil. We saw somebody murdered! What? Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. They're chasing us. Starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. <laughs> there was nowhere they could hide. Alice, look what was stuck to the back window. It's some kind of message. Witchcraft. Witches! There was no one they could trust. <laughs> well, did anybody hear anything? Didn't anybody see anything? Won't we a trip? Have a good time. Leave this up to me. There was nothing they could do. They followed us all the way from Bandera. They're here right now watching us. But run. with the devil. There's somebody on top. Frank has got to leave. We got to stay in here. No good. Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, Loretta Swift, Lara Parker. Race with the devil. When you race with the devil, you'd better be faster than hell. Welcome back. We've been talking about movies that feature RVs or Winnebago's or whatever you want to call them here on the Cinematic Void podcast. We talked about a classic kind of road exploitation movie from the 70s. Now we're going to switch gears on that RV for some really sleazy trash with 1989's Hitcher in the Dark 
aka Fear in the Dark, aka Return of the Hitcher, directed by one of our favorites. Well, maybe mine, maybe not yours, but I, I should just say one of mine. I don't want to speak for you on this. I don't know how much you love Inverter Lindsay, but I do love Inverter Lindsay. He's got some great stuff. He's got some great stuff. He does got some clunkers, but that's if you made as many movies as he has, you're going to have some misses and some big misses. But anyway, this film stars Joe Bala, who was in Moonstalker and Black Demons, which is a very, I'd say, problematic Inverter Lindsay movie. Just look up the description. You'll see why. Josie Bassett, who is most famous for being on Melrose Place. And Jason Saucier, who is in Sister Sister with Jennifer Jason Lee, as well as Jody Amato's Top Model. The film was written by Lindsay and Olga Pahar, who who collaborated with him over the years as a writer or a script supervisor. She worked you know, had a long working relationship. Music is by Carlo Maria Cordo, who you know you definitely heard his music in Pieces, as well as Absurd. The reason why. I mentioned those two movies together because Pieces repurposes music from Absurd. And he's also done countless soundtracks for other movies, either produced or directed by Joe D'Amato. And speaking of Joe, he was the producer on this movie for his company, Film Mirage, which made a ton of like weird U.S. Italian like direct-the-video movies that were slight knockoffs of other movies, stuff like Troll 2, you know. Yeah. Anyway, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, Mark Glazer is a mentally disturbed young man who has a sexual obsession with his dead mother. He drives around in his father's RV in order to pick up female hitchhikers to kidnap, rape, and murder so he can fulfill his sexual desires. One of the women he picks up strongly resembles his mother, and she's about to take the ride of her life. Now, this is the... I think this was the selling blurb or what selling point of this or not selling point, but like this was the pitch of the movie, I guess. And I should mention way back early on the pandemic, when I first started doing the cinematic movie, this was the first movie that I did the up all night format on. Cause I had previously done the midnight hour and, um, planet of dinosaurs. And I did a more like a traditional screening where I had a walk in or like a pre-show and then the movie and you, along with my wife Morgan, had suggested, like, well, you should try to do the up all night format. And this was the first one I did it on. You know, it's, I'm sentimental to this movie because that kind of changed it. And, like, I think in the end of the day, by switching that format, it made the cinematic movie better mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Now, about this movie, Umberto Lenzi was coming off making Ghost House, which was shot around the Boston area and even includes the famous house that was used as the house in House by the Cemetery. He did that in 1988, and then he worked on a couple of productions in Florida. He co-wrote Primal Rage, which we talked about on episode 19 of the Cinematic Void podcast for our On Halloween series. And he may or may not have directed Nightmare Beach, a.k.a. Welcome to Spring Break, which came out in 1989, and we talked about on our Spring Break episode, which is episode 31. I'd like to take a moment. And not break your balls and actually say, just get, let you know, great job on, on citing all of these. That's fantastic. Uh, and the funny thing is, you're naming shit that I do not remember ever talking about. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long ago. Like, I never saw that fucking, I never saw like, I don't know. 
You you re- I remember Primal Rage and Primal Rage. I remember Nightmare Beach, so I, I guess. But well, you you, you remember <laughs> the song from Primal Rage mm-hmm. and Nightmare Beach because it was used to both. Say the word. You at least remember that. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. It might you I've made you watch a lot of fucking trash. You, this is facts. So much so that you've had to start a criterion themed podcast to like cleanse your palate of all the fucking garbage I've made you watch over the last two years or whatever it's been of this podcast. That is correct, and that may also apply to today's two films. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Race for the Devil is pretty tame in comparison to a lot of things. This I mean, uh, I, re- I remember watching this in the cinematic movie and being like, man, this is fucking, this is kind of, this is, this one's a bit much. This is, <laughs> well, this is one of the few like this. And I guess, you know, maybe fetus kind of was a, a, a bit much for a few people. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I remember this one being particularly brutal and it is, yeah. you know, it's just particularly shitty. <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean it's a shitty movie. I just mean like, you know, think of like the guy's a fucking bad guy to like, an extent that like people aren't even really uncomfortable watching anymore. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're going to get into that a little bit, like just how repulsive. The yeah, it's just fuck. like when you talk about, you know, you say it a lot about films being sleazy or like, you know, you you say that about a lot of stuff, but this one, it, it really applies. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a different tone from like the other American productions and Berta Lindsay was working on. Like, you know, I, I listened to a little bit of the commentary to this because... Before, when I put this on the Cinematis movie, there it was just on DVD. But since then, it's come out on a very nice Blu-ray release by Vinegar Syndrome, which I recommend picking up. On the commentary track by Sam Deegan and Kat Elliger, they kind of talk about, you know, that and Lindsay was very dissatisfied with Nightmare Beach. And to the point, like, he swears he never directed it, where other people said he definitely did. And they kind of, like, made the case that this was him, like, going the polar opposite direction. In some ways. I mean, Nightmare Beach is sleazy, and there's a lot of, like, there's some really horrible stuff and mean stuff that happened to it, but it's kind of fun. Even though you don't remember because you erased it from your mind from when we watched it. Yeah, okay, maybe I don't remember a lot about Nightmare Beach. The motorcycle helmet. Yeah, the motorcycle helmet one. Yeah. But, you know, whereas Nightmare Beach is sleazy and fun, this one he went just sleazy and fucking mean, which you were alluding to like it's a mean ugly fucking movie and as you already talked about like when i screened it there's a lot of people like i don't know if i like this i don't want to like this yeah like (laughs) it was probably a bad and bold choice to show that as the third virtual screening but like i was trying to still figure out what the fuck i was doing i was trying to pick things that like a i could play on youtube and b you know people haven't seen or just kind of give a variety of stuff and someone said something about it, like, you know, man, this was a bit much. And I was like, well, sometimes you need to watch something that smashes your moral compass to find out where it is. And I think this movie is definitely a moral compass smasher and an endurance test in a lot of ways of not because it's bad, but because a lot of bad shit happens into it. Yeah. Now this movie, unlike, you know, Nightmare Beach and Primal Rage that was shot in Florida, this takes place in Virginia Beach. So different beach, got a different vibe. Now we lived, I don't want to say close to Virginia, Virginia Beach. I think it's, I don't know how far. That's actually quite a far, 
kind of deep into Virginia, isn't it? I think it's past Richmond, right? Uh, yeah, it's just you know, east. I I don't know what it, how it is in relation to Richmond. You know, I don't know. So I guess we'll keep that part out. Yeah, no, <laughs> or we just keep it in. Hey, actually, I don't, I don't know the stuff. Well, I I actually looked up and it's. I have a point about this later, okay, so okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave her fucking like, where is it located? I mean, we could look at a map, but fuck that. We're just going to soldier through here. The thing about this movie, as bleak and mean and ugly as it is, it's still fucking goofy, which is something that like has kind of like just always been in all these later era, you know, Berlenzi movies. Like, there's a goofiness to Nightmare Beach. There's a goofiness to Ghost House, which also is a little bit mean. But, like, not as mean as this. I mean, let's just talk about some of the goofy moments in here. I just picked a few that stand out. The fucking impromptu dance sequence featuring Josie Bissett. I mean, it, the way it just goes on and the fucking soundtrack to it's just kind of ridiculous. And, like, it may be one of the most, like, absurd things that Berta Lindsay's put in any movie. Because it just goes on. You see the RV driving by and, like, the girl's like, woo! And they're, like, dancing. And, like... It feels out of step. It feels like, oh, this is how an 80s movie or like an American 80s movie should be. And it just doesn't register that way. It's like, okay, dance. Yeah, crazy. Okay. It's very disconnected. And for somehow, in a movie that's sleazy, I guess it makes sense because the movie's sleazy, but if it was in like a fun-loving wet t-shirt contest and this fucking thing. Well, just just like fucking quicksand... Uh, just wet t-shirt contests were just like a thing in the eighties. So like someone that's just not from, uh, or well, uh, I would say maybe a thing in, in like American movies yeah. and, and just a thing in culture really. But you know, so then someone not from America just going like, all right, I'm going to make this crazy movie. Well, we might as well have a fucking wet t-shirt contest. I mean, maybe that was everywhere in the eighties, you know? I'm what, I mean, there is a wet t-shirt. There's an extended wet t-shirt contest in nightmare beach. Yeah. So I, I guess it's not surprising that like there's another one. In mm-hmm. It's just, movie. it's just what humans did in the eighties. <laughs> we had wet t-shirt contests and people judged them for whatever reason, <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah. And then <laughs> the, the last little goofy moment I want to, mention is like that when he when he stops at the drive-in and watching the movie that fucking weird movie where the monkey takes his head off and it's like a rocket ship um i it's a movie called grunt um jody motto i guess had rights to it because he stuck it in other film mirage movies including troll 2 except in troll 2 they're watching on a tv where this movie they're watching a drive-in it's it's a really ridiculous sequence and it's like Tonally, it's so far away from where this movie is, it's jarring. Because you just watch a monkey take his fucking head off and blast off, and you get a caveman that's like, had some explode in his face, like some fucking like slapstick comedy. I mean, there, you know, a lot of horror and exploitation movies had inappropriate comic moments. Like, I think of Last House and Left with the two bumbling cops who like get on the chicken truck and then fall off. Mm-hmm. Like that good old exploitation comedy. Yeah. Which is like, we need a laugh here. You need a laugh, not some fucking jokey, fucking just dumb sequence. Right. But Lindsay just has a way of just weaving this stuff in that you don't really, you don't really comprehend it until it's done. It's just like fuck. He just made me sit through that, and this that was utterly ridiculous. And now he's there's something really vile on screen. Now, I think this movie, for all intents and purposes, 
I think it's intent and purposes. In, intents and purposes. Yeah, intents and purposes. I'm learning like a lot of these things that I learned as a kid aren't correct. So if I'm getting these wrong, I'm, again, 42 and learning. So I think this was supposed to be sold as a Hitcher knockoff, the Rucker Hauer movie. But let's be let's be brutal. Well, is, the, isn't the alternate title it, like the Hitcher Returns or something? Yeah, so something like so that. So it's like a kind of a fake... Italian yeah. sequel. I mean, Italians did this a lot. Like you know, yeah. Ghost House was released as like Evil Dead Four or Five in Italy. Like there's also like you know, Bruno Mattei did like Terminator Two, which was shocking dark. Uh, Claudia Fragasso, who another movie that was shot in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Virginia area, he did um, Night Killer, was released as Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three. Italians love that shit. Damn, dude, is there a band called Shocking Dark? That's a sick name. I don't know. It might be your new nickname. <laughs> I'll have to look, at, look that up after the podcast. Anyway, this guy is nowhere in the same league as Rucker Howard. And I'm not trying to disparage the actor because I'm sure that he got some very confusing directions. But, like, the Mark Glazer character played by Joe Blah is really unlikable and really whiny. And it's a weird combination for a villain. Especially one that's doing really sadistic, brutal, horrible things to people. Specifically women. He's just kind of a whiny bitch. Well, I think it fits. I, I, it just, it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's the best for a film, but it fits for like what you think is the person that would do that. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think actually accurately, this is the kind of person that would really do that shit. And it's funny because like he, he's just a rich preppy asshole that has mommy issues, and he like overcompensates for his sexual inadequacies with murder. Actually, he just overcompensates for everything. Like he goes. When he, like, stops at that weird, I don't know if it's, like, a club resort or whatever, and he's ordering that rum and coke, and, like, the girls are, like, talking to him, and he's, like, just being weird. They call him, like, a homophobic slur. I feel like that that's that guy's life. He's like, I'm really cool, my aviators, and he just gets fucking shit on by people over and over again. And it's like, I'll show him how cool I am in my aviator classes or something. Just, yeah, I mean, I mean, I just feel like he's just, like... A guy, a fucking psychopath that wants to be cool. Yeah. And just fails at it. I mean, yeah, right? Like, it, that's that's it, man. It's like Norman Bates didn't try to be cool. He's just, like, leaned into being awkward. This guy's like, I'm hip. It's like, no, you're not, dude. You might kill people. You might be a fucking sadistic, horrible person. But you're not cool. I mean, again, like, we've already talked about it. It's like, he's a monster, but he's also fucking stupid goofy. And it's a strange dynamic for like the movie. And like, he also gets some like, you know, generic like serial killer quirks. And like he takes Polaroids of victims and stores them in the RV and shit like that. And, you know, the first victim he kills, he, you know, does all that. And then he dumps the body in a swamp. And then an alligator pops up and eats the body. And if this had been a Italians in Florida production, I wouldn't bet I. But this is fucking Virginia. There's no fucking alligators in Virginia. I mean, have you ever heard of this? Just in like New York, you know? Oh yeah. Well, that's you know, when they, they get flushed down the sewer and shit. But right. The whole urban legend. Well, I'm talking about like out in the swamps and like But do they migrate down to uh Richmond, Virginia? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> There's no fucking alligators not fucking going down the New York they, City. It's crawling down to fucking fucking uh, Virginia I, Beach. Like yeah, taking I ninety five down the slowest fucking like fucking gator perp walk. <laughs> Jesus Christ! But you know, I I kind of wanted to research this because like 
I know when you get Florida and Georgia, you definitely get alligators. And I wasn't sure how far up they went. So I just did a Google search and said, are there alligators in Virginia? And I don't know if this is an official statement, but this is what came up. Some locals report sightings in the vicinity of Back Bay, southwest of Virginia Beach. Officially, there are no alligators in Virginia. However, I decided to do a little more research. And basically, the closest gators are to Virginia is a place called Merchants Mill Pond State Park in North Carolina, which is right on the Virginia-North Carolina border. And over, la- over the last several years... The they used to be about 60 miles away from the border. Now they're like 20. And I think that what I read the article was like 2013. So maybe at this point they are in Virginia. This MF is a fucking alligator conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Or it's just global warming changing the environment where it's now like gators can live in Virginia. Yeah. Or at least vacation there. I don't know. But... I looked up the state park in relation to how far away it was from Virginia Beach, and it's 66 miles. And the other location where they filmed that, which is Norfolk, it's 49 miles away. So, honestly, this isn't that far-fetched mm-hmm. as I thought it might be. I thought it was just like, oh, they're just fucking around. Like, oh, we got to get rid of the body. Fucking gator eats it. Like, just some fucking nonsense. But, like, it's kind of in reality. Yeah, in sick. A, in a very weird way. I love it. Yeah, I, I I don't know why I went on this tangent, <laughs> but like, great. but once I went in, like I went deep in the Gator conspiracy. Sweet. So next podcast is gonna be even Montauk Monster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but kind of trying to get back on ta- back on topic here. Um, RVs, you know, not Gators. We're talking about RVs, and I'd say in this one more so than Race with the Devil. I think most of the action, like seventy eight percent of this movie, does take place in a in or around RV. There's like full-on fucking sequences, dialogue exchanges, torture, horrible shit, all in that fucking RV. Now, the core of the story kind of picks up when Glazer picks up Josie Bess's Daniela Foster character. You know, she had a fight with her boyfriend, wants to get out, so he picks her up, you know, slips her a roofie coke or soda, whatever it was, and like, begins like, what he thinks he's going to normally do, which is torture, rape, and then kill the person dump the body. However, he notices that she looks like his mother. And that this is where like I think the movie like really started twisting the knife on people and just how vile and uncomfortable and ugly it is. But I'm gonna say this, I think Biss's performance is outstanding in this movie. And she has to carry it and, you know, she, like, there's nuance. She has to try to play the guy. She has to, like, be romantic with him to try to escape. And when that doesn't work, she has to basically work herself back to square one, like, constantly trying to figure out ways out of it. And furthermore, she's the only likable character in the movie. Like, you root for her, and you want her to survive, and you want her to get away. I can't say that about her boyfriend, Kevin, who is played by Jason Saucier, who I'm not saying is a bad actor, but I don't know, man. He's set up as this, like, bro-jock frat boy type, and he just doesn't ascend past it. Yeah, he's looking for his girlfriend, but it's like, it was fucked up she left me. I'm right. Like, that's kind of his fucking attitude, trying to find her. And, you know, even later in the movie, when, like, 
he tries to save her and gets caught, and then, like, the fucking glazer's fucking torturing him. He's got his fucking mouth, like, slit open like the fucking half, like a half Joker. Mm-hmm. Not the full Heath Leather Joker, like the half slit. He's, like, fucking carving the word pig in his chest. Like, it's a fucking brutal scene. You feel the action, but you don't really feel anything for the guy because he's just like, eh, he's kind of a jock asshole. And it's like, yeah, it kind of sucks this has happened to him, but, like, you're not emotionally invested in the guy like Josie Bissett's character at all. Right. And, I mean, that that's just kind of the pinnacle of this movie is just, like, no one's really likable except for her. Even, like, when they run into the biker gang and, like, everyone at the, you know, at the whatever resort, wherever they stop at, like, everyone's just kind of a fucking asshole in this movie. Yeah. Except for her. Right. And it's pretty amazing that, like, you could just get that many, like, not physically, you know, looks-wise ugly, just, like, ugly people on inside. I think this is a testament to Lindsay that he could create such an ugly movie and bring out so much ugliness in, like, that cast. Yeah. I don't know, man. This movie... Could have been really, really even worse. Because, you know, we'll just talk about the ending here. So, eventually, Mark Glazer kills the boyfriend and theoretically kills Daniela. And he goes to, like, a, it's like a, like a dump or, like, place where they dump, like, spare cars. I don't know what you call that. I can't remember what it's called. I know there's a term for it, like junkyard. There we go. That's what it's called. So a junkyard puts the boyfriend's body in a fucking trunk and welds it shut. Um, someone's rummaging around the junkyard, so he doesn't get time to like do the same to Daniela's body. So he just puts her in another trunk and puts a puts some fucking scrap metal on top and rolls out. Then he stops and visits dear old dad, who's just another rich asshole, terrible person. He's like, "How you doing, son?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna hit the road again. Take the RV out." All right, son, I don't give a shit kind of thing. You know, another 70s, 80s trope is uh, junkyards. Yeah, that's true. Like, you can't really get a good junkyard scene in a movie anymore. I think, I mean, actually, they cut it out. Well, they cut most of it out of the movie, but, like, Pulp Fiction had a big, like, junkyard scene. Oh, no shit. And originally, there was a scene with Harvey Keitel and Dick Miller at this junkyard, but they cut it out of the movie. I think you just kind of get the aftermath of it. Okay. I mean, but that's the last time I can think of, like, a big, like, junkyard set piece. I mean, uh, Stand By Me comes to mind. Yeah, but Pulp Fiction is like years after Sure, Stand By sure, Me. totally. But it wasn't on screen. Oh, it's true. <laughs> well, it sort of is, but no, you're you're right. But yeah, you got junkyards, RVs, rattlesnake or rattlesnakes are 70s, quicksand, I should say. And anyway, Mark Glazer hits the road, picks up another hitchhiker, thinks he's about to do all the same shit again. Turns out the person he picked up is really Daniela. And she's like, Fuck you, bro. And fucking caps his ass. But they do it in a weird way. It's like all like freeze frames. So it's like, it's her face as she's shooting him. It's his face wincing as he's being shot. Like, it's a weird way to do it. And it ends on a freeze frame of her face in the credits roll. And I I think it ended up this way because they changed the ending. Yeah. Apparently, the original ending of the movie was just, she's dead. And he just rolls on, keeps killing people. Which would have just really sealed how fucking vile and ugly and brutal this movie is. Right. But, you know, I I think her character deserved the redemptive, not redemptive, but like, you know, get justice. Yeah. Like after, I mean, she goes through fucking hell in this movie. And like, I feel like if they didn't have that movie, and even though they did it in a weird way, it just like, 
the movie's already trash. Let's just be honest. It's a trashy fucking exploitation movie. Yeah. But it'd just be like, it'd be a different level of trash. It'd just be unwatchable. So I think it needed that breath of like a happy ending. And I'm using the word happy in quotes. Anyway, final thoughts on Hitcher in the Dark, Nick. Again, I love how sleazy and mean it is. So it's it's great in that, you know, if you're if that's what you're looking for, if you're just looking for uh, a nihilistic thrill, uh, this is a great place to, to find one. Yeah, I mean, we never use the term nihilistic, but goddamn, this movie is really nihilistic. And that's even with a whiny bitch of a serial killer in it. <laughs> we're going to gas up the RV real quick, but when we return, we're going to close things out with Read, Watch, and Listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Hey, you want to ride? Yeah, can you take me to the first bus station? Sure. You can't see me here! Stop it! Stop it! I'll kill you. Throw me the key to the camper. Quick! I said move! Ah! Help! Please, somebody! Please, open up! Help! Please, stop! Stop! What did he look like? He was about 20, I guess. He had one of those mirrored sunglasses. Are you worried about your little friend? Huh? Why are you torturing him? He had nothing to do with this. Oh, that's it, isn't it, you little whore? You're afraid he won't be able to fuck you again, right? Leave her alone! You little pig. Let me show you what happens to a bastard like him. No, please don't. Kiss me. Number 22, Manteca Trailer and Motorhome is celebrating 22 years of helping people just like you enjoy the good life in the finest RVs made, like Jamboree and Pacero from Fleetwood. Jamboree, stylish luxury motorhomes in the midsize class. Pacero, the top of the Fleetwood line of full-sized motorhomes. Do it now. Get away in a Jamboree or Pacero and save big. See why RV stands for real value at Manteca Trailer and Motorhome. Welcome back. It's now time for On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. All right, Nick, why don't you tell us what you've been reading, watching, and or listening to? Man, I have not been reading, so there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, I have had no time. I've been working 16-hour days. I've been in the recording studio. I've been going to baby showers. And I haven't been, I haven't had time to read, so I actually haven't. That's my excuse. I intended to read this time. Well, it happens. Life happens. For watch, uh, I also, due to you know time constraints, I've kind of I haven't watched as much stuff lately. But uh, I did just watch Claire's Camera, uh, which we've been doing the uh, series of Hong San Su films at Los Feliz Three, and I think a few uh, shows at at the Arrow as well. Um, so I checked out Claire's Camera. 
Um, there's just a Blu-ray floating around. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's just an art film. It's kind of short. It's like maybe 70, 80 minutes. Um, but it but my maybe my favorite thing about that I've noticed in his film so far is just that there's like these awkward conversations that people have, and it's just like a a wide shot, and it's just intense, and they're just like you know they kind of don't like each other or like don't really have a whole lot to say but they're just stuck in this conversation and it's just i just love those moments it just fucking that's that's the shit that grabs me sometimes so, sort of like a podcast yeah yeah maybe yeah maybe <laughs> um i just watched uh rabbit hole which stars nicole kidman and um uh, it's that guy from fucking thank you for not smoking was a guy with the blonde hair aaron aaron eckhart aaron eckhart okay it's directed by john um Cameron Mitchell. Okay, cool. I've actually never seen this, but it's been it's been on my list. Yeah, it's a rabbit hole. Um, yeah, pretty cool. Uh, it's really it's just a you know it's in the it's on the it's on the list with the other uh, dead kid movies. You know, uh, Antichrist. Uh, you mean like basically the you know don't look now like basically a kid dies and it just and their relationship trait. falls apart and that kind of thing. You know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a theme. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I also just watched uh, Manchester by the Sea, which uh, a friend a friend recommended to me and said like, oh, if you want to see a really sad movie, watch this. And uh, you're starring Casey Affleck. Um, I don't know, pretty cool movie. Um, definitely like, there's a fucking house fire and like his. I I think he has like two kids or two small children or something, and they all fucking die. And uh, it, it's yeah, it's a it's a brutal movie. It's like everybody's just dying left and right in this fucking movie. Man, I'm glad you're just keeping with the upbeat <laughs> like cinema here, man. Just fucking well, I mean, uh, people are also dying left and right in the two films that we just talked about. So, I mean, you know, valid point. <laughs> and they're not exactly uh, rays of sunshine, uh, especially hitching, especially hitching the dark. <laughs> what, what you get is that you don't get. I mean, I don't even want to say sunshine. I mean, I don't know what kind of. There's no light at that. It's just a fucking like. It's like a mag light to the face is hit you in the dark. Yeah. That's your sunlight there. I uh, I just watched this film called Day Night, Day Night. And it's about this girl. You like don't really learn too much about her, but she's just like going through the motions where she's decided to go into fucking like Times Square and with a bomb strapped to her. And uh, it's just like intense because it's very like, I don't know. It's all very like claustrophobic and it's just her kind of like slowly it's an art film, you know? So it's just like slowly going through the motions of her day building up to like this moment when she goes to do this thing. Intense fucking movie. Uh, the same director, Julia Loktev also did a film that has been on my watch list for a while called the loneliest planet. Um, Starring that one guy from Itumama Tembien, whom I don't know his name, even though I'm looking at Letterboxd right now. We're just going to run with that um, <laughs> because I'm just taking up too much time here. Um, but but mostly I've been watching uh, The Fucking Shivering Truth, which is uh, Vernon Chapman, the guy that did Wonder Shows. And, um, it's, uh, it's his show from like a couple years ago, and I just recently stumbled onto it, and it's just fucking batshit insane, like stop motion, it just insanity. He also did uh, Xavier Renegade Angel, and uh, it's it, it's definitely a cousin to that for sure. It's very similar in the way that it's just like it's just so nonsensical and and absurd, and it it'll just make your fucking brain leak out of your ear. It's just so like dumb and smart, and it's just it's fucked up. <laughs> uh, so that's that's really that's what I've been 
just sitting around watching lately when I have like 10, 15 minutes to spare, I have not a lot of time to watch movies. So there you go. Uh, listening wise, um, I still just been listening to that new entropy EP, some, uh, early Foo Fighters, a bunch, some Fugazi, some Faith No More. I've been rocking. Been rocking. It's funny that when we started the podcast, you're like, don't listen to music with guitars. Yeah. And I, now you're just fucking strapping it back on and hitting them power chords. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, I haven't heard a lot of, uh, I know the new Kendrick just came out, but I haven't had a lot, heard a lot of hip hop that has inspired me lately. So I just been rocking with this. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of summertime. Yeah. It's yeah. Summer vibes, you know, just windows down f- film, r- delivering film, just pulling up in the universal black, uh, back lot and listening to Fugazi. Yeah. Just blaring waiting room behind Faith the fucking no more epic just blaring <laughs> it Dude. behind the fucking like tram floor. <laughs> I was going to say waiting room, like, cause you're having to be stuck behind a goddamn tram. Yeah. But yeah, that's about it for me. All right, for me, um, Reed, I finished, or I should say I just finished maybe a week ago, um, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records by Jim Rowland. I talked about this on the Batter Up episode because I just started it. And Jesus Christ, I don't know if anyone would be able to actually do this because Greg Ginn would probably sue the shit out of them, is that someone needs to make a dramatic miniseries of the history of SST because it's fucking wild. Dude, there's a, uh, there's a podcast. I think it's called Mojack or you don't know yeah, Mojack you know, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you don't know Mojack, which is going over every single SST release. And I listened to it. In order, of, right? Yeah. Yeah. Listen to some, I mean, I cherry pick some because mm-hmm. like, some of those records I can't. Sure. I'm not going to listen to a fucking Gone episode. I'm sorry, Greg Ginn. Gone's, Gone's pretty good, man. I picked the wrong Greg Ginn project. Gone's fine. There, there, <laughs> there's some there's some other ones, but but like, there's even some Greg Ginn projects for sure that you could name. And it's like I don't know if I I, I don't think I've ever actually heard Mojack. Oh, Mojack is a band. Yeah, it's actually oh, a, so you don't know Mojack. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one. I think it's Greg Ginn and Drum Machine or uh, it's some variation of it. That's a Wait, great that's a great name for the podcast. Now that I know that that's, that's I mean because it's that's... a play on you don't know Jack. You don't know Mojack. Yeah, it's great. It, it's pretty brilliant. Great going, fellas. Great going, Friend, friends. <laughs> and they they've had guests on. I think they had Jim Rowland of the, who wrote this book on a recent episode. I think they're in the two hundreds now or something like that. So cool. get some good things. Getting some weird shit. Um, watch. I watched this slasher movie called Girls Night Out that's been on my list for many years. Hadn't been able to see it. Arrow Video just put it out on Blu-ray and people from Vinegar Syndrome and Severn, my friend Andrew helped, and Joe Rubin, they worked on the restoration of it. So it's like a power, like all the all the labels working together to make, you know, help something be cool. Because like Girls Night Out, I think they had to work off a bunch of different release prints because they couldn't find the negative. And it's a really good release. Pretty good slasher from the '80s, kind of. I'd say a little. It was lost, but now it's it's now it's found. You can see it. And I picked that up from Diabolic DVD. And shout out to Jesse from Diabolic DVD because he was posting online. He had an extra copy of The Beach Girls, which movie I love, and we talked about it on the spring spring break podcast with Nightmare Beach. If you remember, probably not vaguely. Vaguely. Anyway, like he had a copy, and I was like, well, if you find an extra copy of the Pom Hung. Pom Pom Girls, which is another Scorpion release and had a 
I think a sub-license with Crown International put out some of the sex comedies. And, like, one of the ones I never got was the Pom-Pom Girls for whatever reason. And fucking bless Jesse. I don't use the term bless, but bless Jesse. He hooked me up with a copy of the Pom-Pom Girls. So shout out to him. So I watched that, like, the other night. I hadn't, I hadn't watched it in a few years. It's like, you know, in the terms of 70s sex comedies, it's going from the cheerleader run where there's a lot of cheerleader movies and going to more the beach-centric sex comedies, which Crown kind of, like, ran the market on. So it's really cool to rewatch. And then I've kind of been going on a little bit of a Crown International kick that I started at. After that, I watched um, Malibu Beach, which is, yeah, again, really cool sex comedy. They're, they're basically plotless. They just get to, like, kids partying, doing drugs, having sex. You know, what else do you need? Pretty simple. And then I also watched Van Nuys Boulevard. Crown also liked the name their movies after locations for some reason. Mm-hmm. But Van Nuys is not really a beach movies, just about like kids like, you know, driving their cars, like kinda hanging out on Van Nuys Boulevard. Listen wise, and this is directly inspired by reading um Corporate Rock Sucks. Um been listening to a lot of SST or former SST bands. I listened to Husker Du, Metal Circus, and Zen Arcade. For some reason I've never I've liked Zen Arcade, but like it's not my go-to Husker Du record. Maybe because it's a double record and there's a lot to go through. But like, I've actually listened to it all the way through a couple times. Well, I don't want to say I skipped some of the stuff. I don't need to hear it. It's, it's got some fucking for sure bangers on it. Yeah, and then there, there, there there's artistic intent songs in there that I mm-hmm. get that I don't necessarily need to listen to. I mean, I will straight up say maybe this is a maybe this is a controversial opinion, but aside from really Metal Circus. I think that all of the Who's Greedy records suffer from like their their uh, weird experimental side, whereas like you know the Descendants had their weird experimental like fart side, but like for some reason that worked for them. But like the Who's Do and their weird kind of like noise, sort of weird shit and weird like almost like Krishna sounding stuff. Well, like, there's a like, Harry Krishna song on yeah, like shit, that shit, but like that's in like. I don't know, like what, like there's a fucking annoying song on, on like, um, uh, oh god damn it, um, Candy Apple Gray maybe like the baby song. Like, oh, what, that like yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like they always just did that shit. It's like just give me, just give me the fucking meat, homie. Just yeah. give me the let's get to it. Like they had like such fucking great songs. I mean, but then they just wanted to throw some shit on there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, they they were artists, like yeah, and they threw some stuff on there, and not it, everything works. Not but, everything works, I guess. I but. mean, I mean, but the the hit. I mean, when you look at an album, hit the mit ratio, that's yeah. there's more hits than misses, mm-hmm. and like you know, maybe they. I mean, the way they record those albums is like when they were t- supposed to be touring on a record, they were playing songs from the next record live so they had them polished so they would get recorded and then that's how they cycle through stuff but I, mean, I guess if, if you want to write fucking I don't want to know if you're lonely you can write the baby song I guess yeah I don't even know if that was maybe that was maybe that was a Grand Heart song I, I think they're I actually I guess I, they're both Grand I think they're, they're both, both Grand Heart songs but uh yeah but anyway fucking you know yeah. like you get a pass I guess if you can if you can write like fucking makes no sense at all like, or I, a girl I'll, lives on Heaven Hill. Yeah, and like that. I'll give you fifty nine times the pain. Then I guess I'll give you fucking some. You, you can have you can have the Harry Krishna baby song. Yeah, <laughs> and like the fucking eight minute reoccurring dream reoccurring or whatever the fuck it's called that I'm not going to listen to. Yeah, unless but, I accidentally yeah, leave the room. Zen Arcade is a you know it's a it's still it's a it's a it's a monument. Yeah, you know it's you know 
that that fucking era of just like 80s you know college rock punk whatever if melodic you, if you punk, allow whatever it. You yeah yeah you know i mean yeah and i mean again i usually do metal circus and um new day rising and candy apple gray and um i think i'm forgetting one whatever but like i usually go to those but like i went on a big zen arcade kick and like the songs that fucking slap fucking slap hard Dude, pink turns to blue <sighs> jesus dog i mean that 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 that's a fucking all-time banger straight up like that's that's in their top 10 songs for fucking sure i no doubt um also i listened to sonic youth uh, i listened to the two main sst records which is evil and sister and then i kind of went which after. you prefer out of those two i like sister a little bit better Sister's cool as hell. I like Sister a lot more. I forget which one has the Thurston Moore rap song. But Evil's cool too. Like Evil has a fucking like they both kind of have like a noise vibe to them. Yeah, but unlike the Husker Du noise aspects, like Sonic Youth had more of a grasp on it. But mm-hmm. I think it's they because really they, they had a, they commanded well, that shit. They well, were fucking, I mean, they were you know. fucking you know fucking weird shit, weird tuning, you know, mm-hmm. weird guitar. Like they also were coming out of No Wave in New York right. with Swans and stuff like that. So like, like it was almost a coincidence that they ended up writing like pop songs in that like mess of what they always created i mean which kind of gets me to like the non-sst records i listen to which are definitely more pop sensible mm-hmm. sense of that sensibility i should say like you know daydream nation goo and dirty was daydream nation originally sst it was going to be and they pulled it after greg ginn and pay him the royalties oh shit okay or basically greg ginn was taking the money the sonic youth records were making and mm-hmm. then funding like just shit <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Poindexter. Yeah, yeah. Like he was, Sonic Youth was getting pissed that like he was like basically signing just like garbage fucking like instrumental bands mm-hmm. off their back and like fuck this and we're not getting paid. Yeah. So they took Daydream Nation, which was their breakthrough. Like now that we have Sonic Youth, we could afford fucking you know pig pen circus yeah dude (laughs) some of those fucking bands it's like how could you have some of the greatest bands that ever made music on your label and they're just a fucking just shit anyway i've listened to a lot of those like i still think dirty is my favorite sonic youth record yeah and i also can't come up with a very controversial opinion that lee ronaldo wrote the best songs right on i go ronaldo Kim Gordon, Thurston Moore. Now, obviously, Thurston Moore wrote most of them, so he has more hit or miss, but, like, Lee Ronaldo could never miss. Like, he couldn't do a bad song because, like, you only get, like, one or two an album. So they all hit. Dirty is my second favorite, if I may. Mm-hmm. Uh, Experimental Jet Set is my favorite. That Ooh. one, that one, uh, man, it's just, yeah, it's the, when they really hit that, that was kind of, to me, that was their, you know, the high point of that Again, just like avant-garde meets just like great fucking songwriting. I, you know, that was the first Sonic Youth record I own. I think I picked it up at Best Buy when Best Buy used to have cool shit. Yeah. Like fucking 20, 30 years ago at this point. And I haven't revisited that one, but I think I might throw that on when I'm walking home after recording this. So, hey, inspiration there. And then lastly for the SST, you know, re, you know, Going back in time, I listened to Dinosaur Jr.'s You're Living All Over Me, which I still think is a great, like, pop, sludge, metal, mix, noise rock, whatever you want to fucking yeah. call it. Still fucking really good. And then kind of adjacent to Dinosaur Jr., only because they shared a song together. They collaborated on Judgment Night. I listened to Del the Funky Homo Sapiens, No Need for Alarm. This is actually more inspired um, 
Open Mike Eagle brought back his What Happened Was podcast for season three. He's talking to Dante Ross, who's a pretty prominent A&R and um, music producer. Like, he started out in New York hanging with, like, um, Beastie Boys and Luscious Jackson and stuff like that. But he worked at um, Electra Records, and he was instrumental in signing Dell as well as Old Dirty Bastard when Old Dirty Bastard had a solo career and stuff like that. So I listened to the Del the Funky Homo Sapien episode and it kind of made me want to go back and listen to No Need for Alarm. Because he says some interesting things. He's like, you know, for those of you who don't know, Del's cousin is Ice Cube. And like Del had done a lot of uncredited writing on like, you know, West Side Connection and the Yo-Yo record that Cube had produced. And Dell's first record's very G-Funk before there was G-Funk. There's, like, George Clinton's on there, and, like... But Dell wanted to be more rapping, and, like, the original version of No Need for Alarm, there's no choruses or hooks. It's just him rapping his ass off. Mm-hmm. And Dante said, like, I had to fix the record because, like, if it came out like that, no one's going to listen to it. So I made him, like, just hear me out. Put a hook in here. Put a chorus in there. Break up the rapping. The rapping's phenomenal, but you got to make songs. Yeah. And, like... Basically, what he was saying on the podcast, he's like, I like it more than I liked it at the time. And I think, like, you know, it became an instrumental backpack rap record. Like, you know, might not have did as big numbers as the first Dell record, but, like, it basically opened him up to, like, the New York Underground and, like, shit like that. Mm-hmm. And kind of paved the way for when they started their own record label, like him, Souls of Mischief, and, you know, Casual, and that, the, you know, Hieroglyphics. But anyway, that wraps up this episode of the Simnac Boy podcast. Um, why don't you tell us some of your favorite movies that feature Winnebago's and RVs? Or not. You don't have to. But let us know. And, you know, why don't you also tell us what your RV double features would be. Does this one work for you or you got something else you would like to see? But until next time, see, see you in the, the void. void. The accoutrement that you will need. Accoutrement? What is that shit? (laughs)